You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Hello, good evening, everybody. That's when I'm recording this, so that's hopefully the time that you're listening to this. But it doesn't matter when you're listening to this because this is the internet. Everything exists. Time is a flat circle, as Matthew McConaughey said in the first season of True Detective. But this is a holiday. I I normally record these usually in the afternoons, but uh, I'm recording this late on a Monday night, and uh, that's that's what happens because it's the holiday. And let's talk about the holiday in a minute because I want your your true opinion. But before we talk about that, I want to talk about our guest, Mike Schleibaum from Darkest Hour, Be Well, also plays in Battery. He's just done a lot of stuff within the context of independent music, punk, hardcore, metal, whatever you want to call it. He's been involved with it. And he's a friend of mine. I've been able to spend a lot of time with him on the road. He actually, and I mentioned this in the interview, this was one of the first for lack of a better term, real tours that I ever did where it was, you know, booked by a booking agent and we had to show up on time to load in and all this other stuff. And uh, Mike was incredibly kind to, you know, sort of show us the ropes. I mean, we were generally professional and we knew what we were doing, but there were certain things that just really, um, I don't know, just it made a lot more sense watching a band like Darkest Hour do it. So I was excited to have him on the show. He has a signature Ibanez guitar (laughs) that is, uh, and I I just chuckle because I know he was so excited about this. And it was just, it was so cool to watch something like that come to life. And uh, yeah, that's one of the reasons that we're we're talking with him. But I just had to have him on the show. So that's what we did. And um, so for you, first of all, you can support this show. Please, just doing a few things. One, you can always email the show at, or let's see, 100words at gmail. Oh my gosh, I'm messing up the email address. Like, this is so silly, right? (laughs) 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. And that will get you right through to me. And we can discuss, you know, all of the things that you are interested in as far as guests and feedback on shows, whatever it is you want to talk about. I am there. You can also... Go into the reviews for out in the Apple Podcast store and drop some stars, drop some reviews. I would really appreciate that. And it's free. It takes less than 30 seconds of your time, and it makes the show more valid in the eyes of the algorithm. And isn't that the most important thing? <laughs> it's not, but at the same time, it shows support. It's kind of like, you know, when you go to a show, it's uh, checking out the merch table. You know, that's that's free. It's not costing any money. And, uh, you know, when you saddle up and uh, pony up to the merch table and, you know, maybe toss in five bucks for a seven inch, like, you know, maybe that's uh, going a little above and beyond, but that's not even requiring this. But anyways, I digress. I have to talk about the holiday because July 4th for us here in America is an important holiday. And this, like, as I get older, I already didn't care for the July 4th holiday that much when I was younger, besides the fact that you could just, you know, blow up stuff like that's fun, inherently fun. But the older I get and the less enamored I am with our country, which of course there are many positive aspects to it. Don't get me wrong. You always got to preface this by saying when you're a critical of something, you have to say, like, there are a lot of great things about it. But just the the blind patriotism that exists within this particular holiday, it just uh, it, it wears. And it's like the idea that people just like to get drunk and shoot off fireworks at each other 
without any real consideration for what this country has done, both positive and negative, while just looking at the positive and saying, if you don't like it, you shouldn't criticize it. And it just, yeah, the older I get, the more and more this holiday is just like, oh, man. And then plus on top of it, every single dog in America hates this holiday (laughs) because it's so sad watching them react in a negative way to all this fireworks and commotion and it's just it's it's really sad so i don't know hope like maybe you like the holiday and may i'd love to hear from you 100 words podcast at gmail.com always open for discussions around that but anyways let's talk to mr mike schleibaum Uh, as a great discussion and of course at the end of the episode i will always tell you who is coming up for the week after so that's what we got here is mike I was very aware of Darkest Hour before we toured together. Um, you know, I think, gosh, I want to say that was like 2002 or something like that. It was around that era. But yes, it, 2003. It, okay, 2003. I think it was, uh, uh, well, I don't want to cut off your story, but I can. No, no, no. The, pin, the, I can kind of pinpoint when it was because it would have been around the release of Sadist Nation. We yep. did some shows. And now look at my goddamn memory, though. Uh, we did some shows uh, with Curl Up and Die. Yep, And they were regional because we had, at the time, we had regional booking agents. I mean, it was just crazy. And uh, you guys were kind of on the West Coast end of it. I don't even know, Midwest. It was just, it was, it was haphazard at best. And I apologize ahead of time for the turnouts, but it was a wild, crazy time to be alive. No, and dude. Those well, were some it- of the, my favorite shows. <laughs> I remember well, house shows specifically, but... I'm not sure if you want to get into the whole movie that was following us because that shit is wild. Like, I've ne- barely ever talked about any of that shit because I, it's just all fell apart. It's crazy, right? <laughs> no, it was. It, it, well, it's funny. You, <laughs> there's a lot of things in there, but the the yeah. idea that like. I mean, we definitely, I mean, that was the tour that uh, Minus was supposed to be on. And then, you know, they broke up because they had a lot of drug problems. Oh, but they <laughs> know. To, whoa, whoa. Hold up. It was right? a much more, much more nuanced, awesome story than that. I must admit. Because <laughs> they did make it to America. Right. Like, uh, let me, let me cue your listeners in on that story. Because it's just Please. too good. Uh, I, uh, um, they were a band from Iceland. Okay. We can start from there. Minus was a band from Iceland and they were on Victory Records which made no sense. But we thought it was awesome because we wanted to go to Iceland. So Darkest Hour actually booked a tour of Iceland and traded Minus for their chance to come to America. And when we hooked them up with an entire U.S. tour, which made Victory very happy, uh, they proceeded to uh, leave after the first week because they got into like constant fist fights and just insanity, uh, which was actually, at the time, just run for the course, you know, just kind of like what every day was like. But now looking back, I mean, uh, what happened was the bass player had gotten into a bar fight at one point, broke his hand, didn't know it. Months later, he almost has gangrene. They find out in the middle of the tour and he's got to go home or lose his hand, you know, and 
This was the day after we pulled them out of the street because they were hammered on ham grenades, these drinks in uh, New Orleans in the French Quarter, and they were screaming, trying to fight cops. And it was just like, man, they're not even from America. We're like, you guys got... I remember grabbing one, the lead singer, crewmate and pulling them, like just pulling them away from a police officer and using my privilege to make sure he didn't die. You know what I mean? It was crazy. Totally. But, uh, I, but those were the yeah. times, people. That's what we're talking those, about. <laughs> exactly. Those were the times. But it, it's funny. All of that to say... That was like one of our first, for lack of a better term, like pro tours, i.e., you know, a person, you know, booked it that was, you know, not directly related either to, you know, your band as far as like, oh, it wasn't Mike putting together the shows. It was, you know, this this pro tour. And we frankly learned a lot of like how to, you know, show up for loading, like all these like basic things. But since you have been put in that situation so many times of being, you know, for lack of a better term, like the elder statesman of like, oh, you know, this is how you tour. This is how, you know, you, <laughs> you're able to put one foot in front of the other. Um, you know, what what sort of like, I guess, do you kind of duck in to like sort of, you know, show the kids the ropes if you are touring with younger bands or like, you know, how does that kind of, I guess, transpire, um, you know, because it, that that is a big learning process for bands. Well, we've been at it for a minute. You know what I mean? And I think we've we've watched the rise of the internet and the rise of this pseudo-professional industry that didn't even exist, like was on the cusp of existing around the time that we're talking. And I think that put has put us in a position to actually have take taken a lot of bands on, not their first tours, but lot, like similarly their, one of their first tours. Like if I just go down the list of the bands I can remember, you know, Job for a Cowboy, Whitechapel, a mirror, um, Parkway Drive. Uh, I mean, those are just ones like randomly off the top of my head. Like it, it happened all the time. And I think a lot about what we're about is is we don't we don't hide backstage. I mean, as much as we can't, you know, we, we do. We are like social, no matter who, which band member you're really talking about. So like we um, kind of felt fell into this sort of thing where when you're headlining you're sort of like in charge and then we were constantly taking out these younger bands who later carnifex for example you know would blow up and become an actual band that was touring and doing the same thing and then and then uh we had learned from doing so many heavy metal tours like what you don't want to do if you want to have any kind of relationship with anyone you've ever toured with after the tour and we tried our best as as much as we could to like fight that impetus and do the right thing. And, and that I think helped us stand out a little bit, but I'm not going to also candy coat it because we've fell into the trappings of being a headliner and doing certain things to, to bands that I don't necessarily think I'm proud of over the 25 years. But for the most part, I think we did the right thing by, by bands and we became friends with a lot of bands and a lot of bands, went on to have experiences that weren't necessarily the same later on. And they learned that those tours were special, you know what I mean? And I think when you are in a band, you're, and you're making music, you're constantly learning how to emulate your, your influences, like your favorite riffs, your favorite stage moves, your favorite light show, your favorite t-shirt designs. And I mean, at some point you absorb your favorite band's culture, you know? And, mm -hmm. uh, 
and a band like Darkest Hours has existed for this long through member changes, but in general has a strong culture within the band about like what we're about, like kind of like a gang. And I think a lot of bands, uh, you know, they um, think a lot of bands, they kind of, you know, respect that and emulate that. Right. Well, and also, I mean, as weird as this sounds, like you definitely do bring in the same way that, you know, whatever corporate workplaces talk about culture, like you definitely do that. You set the tone as a headliner where it's like you welcome in bands and, you know, and then, and then on the flip side, you can also be really cold and just kind of like you guys stay in your lane. We'll stay in ours. You know, we'll enjoy each other, but like never the two shall meet. And so I, I understand what you're saying of just like creating the environment in which bands can learn from you and and not like the old guy in the porch way where like oh i remember back in the day sort of thing i just would like to say too though like to add in there i think some of what we were about came from uh a lot of what we were about came from the early 90s metal hardcore movement that started on the east coast like where we very first started going to shows and and i can shout out all of my local band heroes like damnation ad and battery um you know, these, these bands that were touring that were like actual bands, they took us on tour. They put us on their shows. They didn't compete with us. You know, they like, they showed us how to do stuff too. Uh, you know, how to flyer for your first show. And I think because we had sort of that almost bigger brother experience with some of these bands, we were able to kind of get out there on the wave before some of the other bands that were kind of doing the same thing were, and that's how we were thrust into this role. I mean, it's actually kind of interesting when you tr- sort of try to trace it back. But um, in the end, it comes down to a simple idea, which is that when you're on tour, the band supporting you can easily become the biggest band in the world. You know, and it's just best to remember that, you know, respect flows both ways. So you, if you're good to people when they're under you, you'll be able to get on their guest list when they're much bigger than you. <laughs> Right. No, for sure. It definitely uh, comes and drink all their beer backstage. You know what I'm saying? And just fucking roll in there and be like, well, what about what? You know, so you do want to play it forward. You want to pay it forward, kids. Yep, absolutely. Uh, it, it will pull some more threads on a little bit later, but you know, I, you as a person, I know you were born and raised in the Virginia area, and y- y- <laughs> I find it so funny when, uh, like Wikipedia has this like really super specific information on people that you know, like clearly you're you know a different person than um you know like Travis Barker, where it's like every every piece of their life is dissected. But I just love it where it's like <laughs> Wikipedia says that your mom was an ex nun and your dad was a land developer. <laughs> it was just like that's pretty awesome that somebody figured out what my dad did but my mom being an ex-nun is actually I've, I've talked about that a lot just because she was so religious and it was very uh formative in my early heavy metal years which i think a lot of younger heavy metal people who were born in the 70s can relate to sure you know I mean? no it, oh so totally. it's just kind of a universal story i mean although it's kind of amplified because she was literally in the convent for a decade and decided not to take her final vows and have a family and the whole thing and definitely brought that into the family. And that pushed me away for a really long time. But, uh, we do have relatively healthy actually relationship, me and my mom, because I can talk about it with you right now. And, you know, me and my mom still talk, we have a relationship. It's not bitter. You know, Mm -hmm. I use that. I use that angst for a lot of good albums and some good, you know, fodder for my own life. And then at some point I had a kid and I'm just like, man, being a parent is bullshit. 
So she was just trying to do whatever she thought was right. You know what I mean? So I think people yeah. get have that perspective. Anyway, uh, I digress. No. Yeah, no, but that's sure. true. That is yeah. true. So keep you the Wikipedia hat. Uh, you know, you have people on the internet who like just to fill in the blanks, but you know, as long as yeah. it's true, I'm not, I don't worry about it. It's just when it's just total bullshit on there. It's so hard to clean up. Oh, people believe whatever they read on the goddamn Wikipedia. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, the, the authoritative voice as it were. But, uh, I, I don't know, like brothers and sisters, what was the, I guess the house makeup as it were. Oh, I'm the oldest of, uh, three and the other two are uh, almost nine years younger than me, the, the older of the two. So I have a brother and sister, and they are a lot younger than me, but we're, we're good. You know, I was kind of like the live-in babysitter in the house until of course. I was old enough. And then that came with a lot of benefits because I got a vehicle. I got a truck. That meant I could drive. I got freedom as long as I was at home to basically my deal with my parents was I had to be at home after school at in high school because I was around to, to take care of the two kids while they finished working because they both had jobs. And so, cause my mom was a, an insurance adjuster after she was a nun. <laughs> so, uh, I, uh, ended up being just a babysitter after school, which worked for me because I hated school. I hated extracurricular activities, hated everything except for street hockey. And then one day somebody played the Metallica black record and I saw an MTV music video. And then all of a sudden I liked music. And so I could work on music every day at the house and pseudo watch my siblings until I got old enough to just to leave. And they're, like I said, they're nine years younger than me. So my parents had their handful just like dealing with that. So I kind of got a lot of autonomy. And I think although I was a bitter with them about like not really supporting the band, I mean, neither of my parents ever saw Darkest Hour or will see the band live. But uh, in the end, I did get a lot of freedom, you know, to go in the city and and, and do stuff that allowed me to become a musician, you know, for real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially too, where that uh once you have that autonomy and you can start to you know feel like you're the author of your life even if it's as simple as like you said just being able to go to shows at you know the age of 16 when you can drive it's like oh yeah like i can do my own thing now and i'm my own person i mean now that i'm older i'm like shit you know how privileged i was to have a truck all this fucking gear like i could drive places like you know and i was in high school i mean a lot of people don't just get a vehicle and all that stuff so i well, I did really, you know, in retrospect, have a lot of uh, benefits from, you know, my family that might, you know, could very well be considered support, you know, but sure. maybe I couldn't have seen it at the time because all I wanted my mom to do was stop throwing away my fucking Aussie shirts every time she found one. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> they're hard to get back then. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're hard to get now for, you know, under $300 or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> Now you can just get some reprint from somewhere on Google and you're fine. But man, when I was a kid and she threw away that Aussie shirt. But anyway, oh, I also yeah. digress. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I totally get that. Um, it, it, kind of on that same notion, like, I mean, for as long as I've known you, you definitely have always been, you know, social, jovial, all of the the things that you would imagine a quote unquote life of the party is um, was that kind of always who you were, or is that something that kind of developed as you you know whatever you started to go into high school and start to be your own person, or were you always kind of that uh, you know cut up? That's an interesting question. Uh, uh, I, I know it's hard I'm to reflect like on asshole. yourself. You don't. Understand. Okay, I'm not an asshole as in a jerk. I just never shut up. 
I suck up a lot of the oxygen in the room. I know that I'm a loud personality. I try to like mute it. I'm sensitive about it. But when I'm around my real friends, my long-term friends, my friends who can take it, (laughs) then I just fucking wow out. You know what I mean? And it's just kind of like insane. But really, it it wasn't really like that in high school, although I... I have to, I, God, it's so fucking embarrassing, but I'm just going to tell you the truth. I like won senior superlatives, like awards in high school, like most original, most musical. I was friends with every type of person in high school, like a jock, a metalhead. I was on the fucking prom cl- planning committee just because everybody was like, he's weird. He, he knows, uh, you know, a couple people and this click and that click, you know, and I dated the homecoming queen. Okay. You know, she was like, everybody loved her. She was super cool. And she was my girlfriend. And we won cutest couple. We also won that award as her. Cool. But, uh, but that, all that uh, aside, I think what really was formative in high school and was the beginning of the Darkest Hour story was the death of my friend Brad Catchy, who was also friends of the band. And he died on the day of the first darkest hour show which was the beginning of my senior year of high school so uh brad died and he was part of our little straight edge vegan hardcore clique in high school so everybody just automatically assumed he was my best friend although he had other best friends and they took the loss a lot harder right away because people just thought we knew him the most but i think that thrust us and me into a spotlight where i ended up being the de facto speaker for that little group and then known and then therefore not the life of the party, but used to being very social. And then uh, I think once Darkest Hour started touring, I was the only guy who didn't party. I was vegan and straight edge, which meant I was the only one. I was the only one, by the way, I'm trying to tell you that would have been sober. The only one driving anywhere. The only one apologizing to people's houses that got trashed that we stayed at parents of people's houses that we stayed at that didn't realize we were all there and they were kicking us out cops promoters pissed off fans pissed off local bands that have no fucking idea what's happening you know what i mean anything i was basically just like the only sober dude and thrust into being in charge of the money and talking to whoever and then eventually uh what happened was uh, the two met and I started to party and I started to enjoy that aspect. And now I just like, I'm not in charge of shit. <laughs> like I'm head of creative. You know what I mean? I got someone I pay to do the money and talk to the promoter, talk to the cops. Cause you don't want me to do that. You know right. what I mean? Like you do not want me, even though I'm in charge of darkest hour. Literally, I guess I could say that. Although John is totally in control too. I'm not in charge. I mean, I'm the like de facto day to day runner head or whatever. But like if we're at the airport and there's a problem with the bags with Delta or something, I am not even though my name's on the credit card and I'm the one who paid for all this shit up front, according to the the paper, because I'm doing all the paperwork. You know, I'm not the person who's going to talk to the authority person at all. John does a great job. Our tour manager, Tito, has been with the band for two decades. We'll handle that type of stuff. So like it's so weird how my the evolution of my stupid personality has kind of gotten, but you know, I've always just tried to be honest, you know, and I think that may makes me a close talker and a loud person, but at least you know what you get. And I'm not not gonna (laughs) like not interact with you, you know, 
people come up to me sometimes like <laughs> randomly wherever I'm, and it doesn't happen so much because of COVID, you know, but uh, when I did go out <laughs> before people would come up to me and I would meet their enthusiasm, like, but even greater. Like if they would come up to me and stream, go, Oh my God, you're my schlep mom. I would go, Oh my fucking God. You know, I mean, that's crazy. Like, and then who are you? Where do you work? Do I know you? You know what I mean? Right. And that's, that's part of, uh, that's part of our early hardcore roots, man. Because back when we started this band, what you did was if you saw anyone who had a hardcore vegan, hardcore straight edge, any kind of band you knew t-shirt or looked like they were a skater, you asked them, man, do you, do you like hardcore? Are you straight edge? Cause that brought you to, do you know who earth crisis is? Do you go to hardcore shows? Like, do you want to come to this show? You know, like it was so easy to make friends, but it was also so normal. And so such a part of the band experience that I think once we ended up in the rock and roll world, it felt different, but to us, it's always just felt like, in me too, you know, my personality being loud, it's always just felt natural. Here we go with band merch, the summertime. This is all important things within our lives. And you need to go to rockabilly.com because they are, they'll get you hooked up with the best band merch around. They got beach towels for the summer. <laughs> they got everything you could possibly want in the context of merchandise. They got posters, they got everything you want. So use this code 100 words that gets you 10% off your entire order. And plus, it also tells them that this show sent you. Every time that anybody uses that, it's like, oh, hey, advertising works. So support them, support us. It's a virtuous cycle that exists here. But Rockabilly is great. They've been in business for over 30 years. So many items. They they constantly say half a million, but I would be hard-pressed to believe that they're, you know, maybe getting up to the 600,000 at this point. They also are all officially licensed stuff, so you're not getting any sort of bootleg material. You are getting the real deal, and what's important about that is the bands get paid. That is super, super important in this day and age of the internet where everybody can rip off designs and make money, and then the band is left completely out of the scenario. So, Rockabilia, the best place. Use the code 100 words, 10% off. Get some stuff for yourself. Get some stuff for your friends, your significant other, whatever it is. Rockabilia is there for you. So, thank you very much, Rockabilia, for supporting the show and for supporting those people buying band merch. Oh no, I I appreciate the you know walking through that that thought process because I do think that there and this was a, a distinct difference that I'm sure you noticed too. It's like you know once the the worlds started to blend together between you know punk metal and hardcore, it, like the dividing line that you can draw down there is the you know DIY aspect of it, just the you know the fact of setting up your own shows and all this stuff that you're talking about. Because there is a distinct difference on the other side. If like you haven't done any of that stuff, it doesn't mean you're necessarily you know, like a bad person, but you just don't have that experience. And then you don't have that same approach to not only the way you deal with people, but then the way that you deal with your band. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's survival. Yeah. You know, you, you know, it's just like you're dealing with, a you know, a bunch of people who have already been in so many bar fights that they kind of know to get out of the way of the trash can when it's thrown at you. And yep. when you're a younger band, like, you know, it's like how many bouts can you go in the ring before you get to be a seasoned boxer kind of thing. And so we, we, uh, I don't know, we're kind of like lucky that we enjoy the pain, I guess, but in the sense you learn from it, you know, and then it makes you an actual 
business, you know, and it makes you an actual thing that can survive real drama and real trauma, you know, and, it, and, and that is the type of things that then creates, like I mentioned it earlier, kind of like a gang, kind of like a, a thing, like there's a feeling around the, these group of people, you know, and that mm-hmm. is like what makes some of your favorite artists so beautiful. You know what I mean? What makes the BC boys so cool is it's them. You know what I mean? It's just like what makes ACDC cool is that it's AC or Van Halen. You know what I mean? Like it's like people become almost comic book characters, superhero characters. Not every band has to be that way either, you know, Mm -hmm. but, but um, definitely our band has become that. And I think a lot of heavy metal bands tend to that. Yeah, no, for sure. The, um, I mean, this may sound weird, but like Darkest Hour isn't your first band, is it? Definitely not. Okay. That's what I thought. I, I knew you did some stuff, but what was your, I guess, entry point to, you know, like playing shows? Uh, full, um, disclosure. It's all bad. There's that's well, nothing I, I, worth listening to, but, of course. Uh, <laughs> um, before Darkest Hour, I mean, I've, I've, I've been, the, the 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 career of Mike Schleibaum has been crazy as far as how many bands have you been in? Because I, for a guy who's been in one band for twenty five years, I've also been in a whole lot of other bands. But yes, yes, the the the, the scene down here in DC is incestuous. Uh, I love to jam. I love to meet people. I am social, so I always i've I've always loved to the experience of writing, creating outside of the circle of this band, and then bringing those experiences back in. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. uh, I've always kind of like done a lot of other bands, but when I, in the beginning, okay, I had three bands. No, I had two bands before darkest hour. Darkest hour is my third band. Okay. okay? My first band was definitely, you know, a high school band that I met everybody in lunch. And then one of the other guys went to another school, the drummer, because it was really hard to find anyone who could play double bass or anyone who even had a drum kit or anyone who even had a place where you could play next to a drum kit loud at any time of the day that you weren't in school. So I happened to meet a group of kids and the drummer, his dad owned a local music store, but they, they were divorced. So his dad was super supportive, but he lived with his mom. So he had all the space. So it was this weird tornado of perfect events, you know? And so I met this guy and we immediately started writing songs and we created a band called WD 40. Oh, nice. We used uh, some, I guess, some prize that he had won. Kevin, the drummer, had won. And we went into a studio and recorded a five song demo of all originals that I that we then pressed on tape cassette. And I just want to say that is very ambitious. We did zero covers ever. We didn't even think about the idea of playing a song someone else might have written or something people might know we like just right out the gate we're like we're gonna write fucking songs like pantera here we go here's a tape set you know what i mean we're going to shows we're gonna play shows like it was so then right away i'm in high school we have a tape cassette that i'm selling at lunch you know in between classes and uh it's crazy i mean everybody else does bands but who has an actual tape you know what i mean and the way i the way I learned how to press tapes was from another band I had met from, you know, at school who actually is, was a band called Frodus. 
And oh, yes. they were, they later went on to put on a bunch, put out a bunch of records. The last one on Tooth and Nail called "We Wa- and We Wash the Rep- Weapons into the Sea" is a fucking masterpiece. So they're an awesome yep. real band. And you know what? Their first demo was a masterpiece too. Like we sucked. They were awesome, but we thought we were a lot better. Either way, uh, we teamed up with them. We figured out how to make tapes. We started playing shows, and we would play like. Um, uh, we didn't play at the high school. We would like, we played our first show was at a church. Okay. That we rented out because you, they had halls. You can rent out. And we put a flyer in every locker of every high school within a 15, 20 mile radius of where we were at. So it was like six high schools. And, um, cause we live in a densely populated area right here outside of DC. And the show was sick. It had 400 people at it. It was fucking insane. That was right. our first show. And then we broke up because the singer got shoved off to military school because his dad was not supportive of the band and he thought the lyrics were suicidal. So we got the dude we knew who moshed the best to be the singer of my next band called Indivision. <laughs> and Indivision Perfect. was a real hardcore band because we had seen a thing called a real hardcore show down in D.C. with this band called Undertow and this band called Unbroken. And they were from the West Coast and they were doing a tour in the 90s. And this was a big deal because this was fucking metalcore. This was hardcore, but it was metal. The bass player of Unbroken had like a pentagram necklace, but they all looked like greasers, you know. <laughs> and course. I was looking for something to connect to because I I liked Pantera, but I hated everything that they were like everything that was about. Like, really, I didn't connect with anyone that liked heavy metal in school because I felt kind of picked on by them a little bit. So I just, I need, I was looking for something that spoke to me and, you know, um, all of a sudden that, you know, that was the vegan straight edge and that was the metal core. And so Indivision was made and now Indivision started playing real shows that had nothing to do with high school. We would play den. We, there's this dentist parking lot. We would just roll up and everybody would do shows on Friday night and they would just plug into the outlets that were on the outside of the building and the cops never came because it was in an industrial area. Mm-hmm. Um, we played random halls. We played this weird Christian biker bar that we rented out. I mean, we didn't have any fans that liked us that drank. So we had to find halls that would let us just have a bunch, like two to 300 kids who would mosh their asses off in there. And the parents had no fucking, the people who rented these places out had no fucking idea what was happening, you know? But then uh, Indivision broke up because we recorded two demos and it was like really hard to like stretch the creativity of the band and what the members were like capable of doing. And I had, I, I had like way too much ambition for any of them at this point. And I pushed them all away. Cause I was like, we got to do this. We got to go take over the world. And so then we'd got the guy who moshed the best for Indivision to be the lead singer of my next band, darkest hour. And his name's John. Nice, nice. And that's where the rest of my story. So those are my two bands before Darkest Hour. That's that's it. Got it. <laughs> I, I love that. And what uh, I, I'm guessing, I mean, you know, like you said, you know, music started to consume you, you know, in high school and as you were doing all of these, you know, first bands and everything. Was there ever any notion of a life path kind of outside of music? Like, you know, were you ever going to follow in your dad's footsteps with, you know, land development, re- real estate and stuff like that? Or what was the, uh, you know, was there anything else or was it just that? Well, first of all, my dad, he was, he didn't do real estate. He actually like made houses. It makes oh, hell land yeah. development makes him sound like he, <laughs> he got paid, but yep. my mom made more than him as an insurance adjuster. But, uh, that is anyway, I, yep. I don't know. I, I felt like I had to defend. No, him. clarify. But, I, yeah. uh, 
Uh, wait, what was the question? No, I was saying, uh, was there any life path for you? Oh, beyond? yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. So I, I want to use this moment to encourage everyone who wants to be a career musician to go to college. Okay, perfect. And go to college for something that isn't music. I'm telling you right now. And if yep. you want to be a musician and an artist, you're going to stay one. But if you also get an accounting degree, you're going to know how the fuck to do with money. Now, me, uh, I hate numbers. And I staggered around in college for a while before I uh, uh, settled on the uh, major of social work. And this was a pain in the ass because it was a fucking five-year degree I, that I stupid, stupidly got myself into. And it came with a 40-hour-a-week internship I had to do for the last two years. So on top of doing college – which I stacked my classes on two days a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. I also had an internship for 40 hours a week, the last two years of college and uh, put out and failed with Mark of the Judas and recorded so sedated, so secure. So I was like doing a lot of music stuff on the breaks and everything. And I still got my degree. And it, the reason I, I harp on it or bring it up or suggest that people do it is it really gave me confidence that I knew that not that there was a backup plan, but that I knew like the way to learn and the way to exist in what other motherfuckers thought was the real world, you know, because I knew that I was not going to get a job where I was going to work with someone work for someone. I mean, yeah, I, I actually, it's hard for me to work with people too. trust me, but I was like, not going to get a job where I was going to work for someone. I just hate being told what to do. So I loved the idea of getting a degree, but I also liked the idea of knowing that like if I had to apply for a job, if I had to do something where, you know, I had to prove that I had any kind of other skills, like having a degree is always a great wild card for me because, um, you know, it's like, wow, you've done all this and you have a college degree. And I will say like also the benefit from the degree isn't like the ability to use it to get shit or to be your backup plan. It was that I learned how to learn from going to college. Like I learned how to do Excel spreadsheets, like in economics class, even though I hated it, you know what I mean? And I learned a lot about the way teams work and a lot about how interpersonal communication works with my social work degree, which has definitely helped <laughs> making a brand right. and out. I mean, music making collaborative music is all about communication. So I did have a, a strong sense that I wanted to have another side to me, you know, but I, yep. but I really, I don't know if there, I, I definitely didn't see, I never had the idea that I was going to give up because anytime in my life uh, on the music thing, you know, because anytime in my life where I have gotten a little side job, you know, uh, like it's like really soul crushing, and I just, I don't know. I don't know if I could exist as a human being if I had to like, I'm not dissing people that have to do that. I mean, I know people have to do stuff and I would have to survive, but I'm just saying from a healthy creative standpoint, like I'm driven to survive because I just like it here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh no, for sure. And and plus too, that notion of, you know, being in a quote unquote full-time band, like that meant a lot that that didn't mean what it does now. <laughs> you know, well, like, yeah, and it shouldn't. You know, honestly, I like the idea of musicians having jobs, man. 
It teaches motherfuckers not to throw shit around backstage and not to <laughs> piss yeah. off fucking people who work. I mean, I again, I said I was an asshole earlier, so I have trash dressing rooms. I have tried to fight security people. I've do- done, I've committed my fair share of sins you can figure out. But, you know, uh, having a job does help you learn how to not be a total, you know, uh, baby about, you know, everything you want and need and respect what work is. And then also enjoy what you have because, you know, you learn what work is. And uh, all throughout our career as a band, I've done other things for money, you know, uh, for from Hidden Hands and Sadist Nation to deliver us. Me and John were both bike messengers in Washington, D.C. Like we worked as independent contractors and we would fly around the city on bikes. And it was actually one of the best jobs I ever had in my life. It was amazing. It was so much fun, but also it sucked. I couldn't sure. wait. I couldn't wait to be in a band. But I also have produced bands, recorded, done a bunch of other music stuff. Um, and so I think it's important to 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 erase that idea that everybody's James Hetfield. You know what I mean? Like yeah. like the old idea that Ozzy Osbourne was the lead singer of Black Sabbath, and that's just it. That's that's done. People are a lot of different things now on the internet in their, when they're in bands, when they're artists. And I, and I, I'm glad that's changed because I think it was really hard for people to pretend for a long time that they were fully funding their life off, you know, their art. I mean, now it's easier and it's almost more uh, freeing to say, I have also a a job, but I do this because it's my art and I love it. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. No, I totally get that. And the, you know, I mean, once Darkest Hour, you know, like once you signed to Victory and, you know, things started rolling, you started to tour, you know, more actively, I guess, and this may be too big of a question, but like, you know, when did it kind of feel, I guess, real to you? You know, it doesn't even have to be like a big moment where it's like, oh, once we got OzFest, I felt like, you know, the band was quote unquote real. Um, but you know, there does come that time where it's like, oh, okay. Like, I guess we're doing this. I guess we're hopping on this train, so to speak. Um, when did that, I guess, kind of congeal for you? Um, well, I, it's funny cause you brought up OzFest and I mean, that was, that was big because what I remember the specific moment we were on tour with cursive <laughs> yeah. on for the plea for peace tour. Okay. Oh yeah. I remember that. Which we were basically playing death metal to a bunch of uh saddle creek fans packed they were digging it they were super confused what the fuck we were doing there and we weren't selling anything i mean we were like no merch nights but having a great time but so stoked to be on tour with cursive we love it was this mike park it was awesome it was so weird for us because we fit in but we were trying to play death metal and no one cared and out of nowhere, we got a call about getting added to the OzFest, but it meant all of this shit. It meant so much sacrifice. It meant all of this, like, everybody's summer being upheaved. Our bass player was getting married. We were having this huge argument in the park, you know. And again, this was a moment when I, you know, I had a lot of blind ambition and was just kind of, like, steamrolling people. Like, well, we got to fucking do this. We have to fucking do this. Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, <laughs> you know what I mean? Slayer. Yep. Slipknot, Hatebreed, Lamb of God, Black uh, Black Label Society, Super Joint Ritual, Demi Borgir. Can you imagine motherfuckers not just saying yes? But like, we 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 got through that argument. I 
got these motherfuckers agree to, to, to do the tour however I did, bring your girlfriend, you know, do whatever the fuck you got to do. And it it was definitely the right move because that we became a business, an official LLC. And, uh, you know, we got a bank account. We started to uh, be able to have our own credit card and have our own way of being a business. It was no longer uh, me, basically, as an entity. Yeah, your bank account, right? And, and, and I will say there was another moment when we got robbed on tour with Atreyu where we lost a lot of money and we decided just to keep going. That also made it feel like, oh, man, like, we're not going to stop. Like, look at how dedicated these fucking dudes are, too. Like, they're not in want to go home. Right. You know, and so there was a few moments in that era. But once we had the glare of Devin Townsend staring right at us, come undoing ruin. I mean, I'm talking about a lot. I'm talking about we went to Sweden and embarrassed ourselves in front of the Swedish legends because we didn't know shit and didn't care. And then we went on toward the Ozfest and embarrassed ourselves because we give we didn't know anything about playing a stage that was that big in front of a crowd like that. And then we went to Devin Townsend, looked at him and met our match and realized like, holy shit, like, look at how good you can be. Look at, look at Devin Townsend, like, look at how good he is. Not even just as a, a, a artist who's made some records, but as a person, as a, a, a you know, a entity, creative entity. Uh, all the things he's touched, not just Darkest Hour, Misery Signals, all those other bands he he uh, produced. He's a fucking golden lightning rod of positivity, awesomeness. And once we got that motherfucker to pay attention to us, that felt validating. Way yeah. more val- way more validating than the Swedes, although uh, having Thomas from At The Gates help us get there and basically prove to us right in our face that our fucking hero, the singer of at the gates, you couldn't throw a a dart at the moon and pick a a, a random hero like that. Um, was just like us. He was a hardcore kid and we met him on tour with his other band, the crown. And we told him we wanted to go to Sweden and he hooked it up so we could stay at his house and his friends would be on the record. And, you know, like even after that was the validity of Devin paying attention. And, you know, he paid attention for two records. That's right. <laughs> so uh, w- once we've worked ourselves through that, I think that's when it really felt like, okay, we're not going to give up. But then we hit a lot of bumps, man. You know, the story of Darkest Star hit a lot of uh, snags along the way. And there's a lot of times when we could have definitely moved on. But yeah, clearly but yeah, you, we you are didn't. not leaving the party. Nope. Nope. You're here. You're here for the long term. You're a lifer, as they call it. <laughs> um, I kind of on that same tip, like you, you know, the tour life has ebbed and flowed for you guys to where, you know, at one point you were playing like 300 shows a year and then, you know, it scaled back for a little bit, but then ramped up again. You know how you personally have always seemed to me to like take like a duck to water in regards to tour, just because that kind of, you know, tickles a lot of the things that you enjoy. Um, but did your relationship with tour kind of evolve over time or has it always been kind of all systems go? This is a fun scenario. Well, I loved tour early on. Okay. I'm going to tell you, there's two, there's two parts to that answer and they are all revolve around my wife. Okay. Because I have been, uh, with the same, uh, nice young lady woman for 
uh, a really, really long time, everybody. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to let y'all know exactly how old I am, but we have been together for a real long time. And she is, other than John, uh, the only person in the Darkest Hour camp who's been around the longest. Like, so even Tito, who's worked for the band for super fucking long time, didn't come before her. So she has been a part of my life and a support system since I almost can't remember. Now, I do know that before her, uh, obviously, I had a life. I had other girlfriends and I toured uh, and I enjoyed it, but I definitely didn't enjoy it the same way. Uh, there was a drama. There was all sorts of shit that came from uh, relationships and life. my life not being in the right place to support a happy tour environment. Because the thing about tour that you got to remember is that a tour ends. It's not forever. So you have to have life too, you know? And so if you can understand that, then just like when you go to a party, if you understand that the party is going to end, then you actually can have a fucking good time at it. But if you're one of these people that think the party is going to go on forever, then you don't remember to have a good time till it's over. So I think what I'm trying to get at is once uh, Associated So Secure came out, I was basically living with my wife at the time, boyfriend and girlfriend. And I just put all my shit at her house and went on tour and she put up with all that long distance shit. Like before anybody even had an iPhone, before anybody had a, a, a sidekick, before anybody even had a cell phone shit, there were a, 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 a part of our touring life where she didn't even like have a way to call me. I would just call her from pay phones. And pay phones, people, were these phones you put quarters in and then you would press numbers and then you would call people. <laughs> but it's fucked up because you have to like remember their number or yep. carry a book around. Anyway, I just letting all you kids know about that. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, Sari, who is my wife, has been the best and she's been around the whole time and she's been supportive of the band and she's been a rock and she's stopped me from quitting at every turn and never as brought any kind of heat on the situation unless it needed to be. And she uh, also has a lot of things going on in her life that are special. You know, she's doing a lot of shit that are is awesome too. And so uh, that really helps my, the culture of our family and my life here because it's not all about me. You know what I mean? And it hasn't been all about me and our relationship the whole time. And so uh, I just don't think people understand the level of uh, importance that people's home lives are to their ability to enjoy themselves on tour and be uh, who they are at home on tour. Cause some people have to be two different people and that has to be exhausting. And me, I'm just not good at shutting up. So it's hard for me to be other than anything other than I am. You know what I mean? So oh, yeah. the answer to the question is, Yes, I love touring. Why? Because my family has supported it. My, my, my real family, my immediate family, not my family that I started with when I grew up, but the family that I chose has supported it from day one. And that uh, include that also my extended friends, you know, have all been there and supported me in ways that, you know, they, they love the band. They know it's important to me and they know it's important to other people. So you know, when John has needed places to stay or when I've needed places to stay because we were evicted or we were didn't have anywhere to go in between tours and we didn't have anywhere to live because why have rent? You know, I mean, 
there is a whole subculture of, you know, people who supported us and that's why we've been able to enjoy it, you know, and, and it has come with many dark nights. Don't get me wrong. Like being out there on tour, as long as darkest hour has been, you don't get the ups without the downs. But for the most part, we have wrestled those demons and it is fun. If y'all can believe it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. Um, the uh, last couple of things I want to hit on was the fact that, you know, kind of what you were talking about in regards to, you know, that you have been doing other musical projects alongside of Darkest Hour from obviously joining Battery and, you know, the Be Well record that you released last year, which, by the way, that had no business of being as good as it was. But it oh, you don't even in- know. You want to talk Dude. about Be Well? You don't even know. We got a new record coming out real soon. It's going to even be <laughs> Well, I, I'm not surprised. And I it, can brag about it all day because I'm not <laughs> I'm not the 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 focal songwriter in that scenario. But I am an integral piece of the puzzle. And it's right. a blast. And and the reason that it is and the reason I can admit that it's good because I, I know it's good, too. I like it a lot is yep. uh, because I've been pushing to make that shit happen for a long time. You know, that's and I, I'm I'm glad that you did. But the, I, the, the I guess the question that's contained in there, why? Well, I mean, I guess it's two. Why do you still care? I mean, I know music is basically a part of your DNA, but like you know, you don't have to be hearkening back to you know still playing the hardcore of your youth or what have you. But you, obviously, you still enjoy that. Um, is it just the fact that it's like this is who I am? So of course, I'm going to continue to do this and care about it. This is a, I mean, this is kind of a funny question. This is like asking the sky why it's blue. You know what I mean? Yeah. Fucking love hardcore music. Right. Like, I mean, I like death metal, but I love hardcore, dude. Like, hardcore music, punk rock, hardcore, minor threat, seven seconds. You know what I mean? Battery, you know, fucking even chain of strength. I love this shit. I don't even agree with a lot of the worldview of some of these bands, but I just love it. You know, and so uh, I'm not like a 43 year old dude who's like been in a band, death metal band or whatever. And now I'm going to start my rock band and I'm going to have a slick ass haircut. and We're going to go win, y- win over the world, you know, of, of pop rock, which I think a lot of people do. And I'm not the old man who did a metal band forever. And now I started my grunge band because I love Nirvana, which I think a lot of people do. And yep. I'm not the dude who loved heavy metal forever. And now I have a dubstep dance electronica record or a dark wave record, which I think a lot of artists do. What I am is the dude who likes heavy metal and hardcore. And that's what I do. Period. I mean, yep. just, you know what I mean? So, uh, that's just that. That's just it. Yeah, like I when I wake up in the morning, I, I feed up, feed the cats, you know, and the first thing I do other than drink my nice coffees, put on goddamn record. And it's not, uh, it's metal. It's hard. It's, it's classic rock or it's punk. You know, I mean, I listen, I, I like a lot of hip hop too, but I mean, I listen to what we play. I mean, to the point where it might be mind numbing to other people, but it, to, to me, it doesn't feel like home unless there's music on, you know? Yeah, no, no. I, I and I, I think that because there is that uh, fine line between, you know, nostalgia for like, you know, the old high school quarterback talking about his, you know, his touchdown he scored in senior year. And then the art that you still are drawn to, even though it's been a part of your life, like those are two distinct 
different paths. And I mean, in my mind, you're not going down the path of like, oh, reliving my past glories. It's just like, no, this is still who I am, man. Well, that's a tribute to fucking heavy metal, dude. Let's just talk about how cool heavy metal is for a minute and everybody can hate on it or metal because metal you can age into. They don't call them hardcore kids for nothing. You know what I mean? And I'm calling out anyone who's listening to this that is a hardcore kid and is still around. Fine. You know what? You made it. You're like me. But there's a whole bunch of people that had the camo shorts and the Earth Crisis shirt and it was a fade and that's fine. You know, or they like Turning Point and now they're an accountant. That's cool. Maybe they still like Turning Point and they just ain't found a new record that they love. That's fine, too. But the vehicle of heavy metal and hardcore, you know, uh, although hardcore, like I said, it's different. It's harder to age in hardcore. But I think B. Wells proving that there's a lane for that, because in both of the type of musics, both of those styles, those genres, there is the latitude to write about you know, ideas uh, and connect with people in a way that ages. So you can, as B. Wells proven, have a hardcore song about being a dad and not have it suck. And you can might even have a whole album about struggling with mental health and being a dad and not have it suck. And with heavy metal, you can have an album, you know, uh, or a song all about, you know, your struggles of getting old. And that's okay, you know, where as if you're doing pop, if you're doing dance, you know, um, a lot of other genres don't lend themselves to the ability for you to really touch on subjects that grow over time. And that's why I like these genres a lot. I mean, not to hate on other types of music, but that's why I like these, you know. Yeah, no, for sure. And and plus, I think even, you know, with the notion of hardcore being younger than metal is just from a timeline perspective. Now you are reaching that point where, you know, 30, 40 years into it, you are able to (laughs) express yourselves with those pieces of subject matter that you're talking about. Whereas like, you know, like clearly when minor threat was putting out records, they're not going to sing about that because that's not their worldview. You know, that's a really interesting uh, point. I've never thought, which is that time has now compressed the history of both metal and hardcore to have them be equal. It's yeah. basically like how much can you consume of the history on the internet for each one fast enough and you'll you'll know about them both equally at the you know like that lineage maybe is now put those genres at the point where they exist together uh on the same <laughs> relevance level but <clears throat> either way regardless they do provide the lane like you're saying for growth to where we're at now and I think that allows somebody like me to hopefully keep making records I mean god damn it I've thought of like, you know, I mean, I love Metallica, but they definitely look older. You know what I mean? Like you sure. see an old James Hetfield picture and you're like, God damn, I love the hat with the hair. But, you know, maybe the hair don't look so good and he's going with the greaser look now because he's got to change it up. Like I feel him on that. But there's just something about like, I hope that like seeing myself age doesn't draw me away from music. But it's the only thing that I can imagine that might make me want to get off the stage eventually is if I see myself and I think like, God, it just looks, it looks and feels so old, but, right. uh, you know, luckily I don't feel that way yet. So yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and the last thing I want to hit on was the idea that, you know, looking back, cause I know you're, uh, I mean, you've, you've been doing a lot of cool stuff. Like you were talking about the, you know, celebrating anniversaries of records. And I know you have, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have your, uh, your first ESP signature guitar. Is that correct? Oh, damn. 
yeah, man. That's uh, so exciting. But it's not just my, you know, it, it, I've had a lot of different uh, guitars over the years and sponsorships, you know, when you're playing the hot shot guitar game, you got to get in there and get to the conventions. Yep. And uh, we've been using and abusing ESP guitars for over a decade plus. They've been great. They're super supportive and loyal to young heavy metal bands in a way that, you know, Gibson or any kind of legendary older brand might not be. Although shout out to Fender who makes 5150, who's also been supporting Darkest Hour. But uh, ESP has been really behind Darkest Hour from day one, hooking us up, putting us in the position to uh, have a lot of visibility with a lot of our heroes. You know, I mean, after all, the Kings themselves, you know, Metallica used the guitars and uh, you also got George Lynch, you know, Max Cavalera. I mean, it's just like a heavy, everybody, it's a heavy metal brand, you know? And so it feels right to be there. And I've worked with them for years. And so when my custom guitar got created, which was basically my chance to make my own thing, uh, it was special. But, but then when they came to me and said they wanted to turn it into like a production model, I was like, fuck, that's like being knighted. You know, right. yeah, and, you're and like, it's so cool to it. see it exist. And I'll tell you the LTD version, which is uh, not uh, ESP with the ESPs are handmade in Japan. It dude, it holds right up. I mean, I got three of them here and I'm, I got a room full of guitars and I only, it sounds like a commercial, but if you had your name on a guitar, why would you play any other one? You know what I mean? And so it's funny for me now to be staring at these guitars that I love that, 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 that this design basically came up over time you know i love this esp arrow that they have it's like a, a shape that they make right so i didn't make the shape but i gravitated to the shape because it works for me full uh reachability for all the notes uh it has an awesome way it lies on me when i rock around and stuff like so i can move around i can use it but the color the wood the details you know, and most importantly, the scale, the, all those things, all those details are so different that it makes this guitar as a whole very special. And so if you are a person like me who likes heavy metal, you know, high velocity guitar shredding and whammy bar motherfucking action, this is for you. You know, I don't know if it's for everybody's favorite country artist, but you can't be something if you try to be everything. And this guitar is just a badass motherfucker who wants to play some heavy metal. And I can't wait for people to get to play one whenever they can find one. And I encourage people to buy them on the internet. There's a lot of awesome deals with shipping and financing. You can get one of these guitars and play with it. And if you don't like it, you can get it, get rid of it. But it's fun. ESP made a really awesome tribute to what we've been doing and I don't know. I'm in love with it. I'm happy to talk about it and yip yap about it on the internet all day, but I feel like I bore people. So. But it's no, very exciting. No. Well, it, it, that, that that is exciting. I'm glad I could have you talk <laughs> about that. Uh, the, the something that was t- tied up into that was just the uh, the I guess the feeling of nostalgia as you look back, you know, to records celebrating anniversaries and stuff like that. Um, you know, there definitely comes a time where you do that, you know, as you're celebrating these round numbers or whatever, but trying not to be, you know, that old person on the porch saying like, Oh, I remember the day when, you know, things used to be better back then. You know, it's pretty tough to walk down line. 
Right, right. But I mean, to me, it seems like you do balance that appropriately. Um, but is that a cognizant thought that you're like, okay, I want to make sure that I'm not that person, but I am this person? Well, this is interesting because the things that, you know, there's a lot, there are some things about Darkest Hour that are really unique. And one of them is that there's not a lot of other bands, you know, where you, where you look at their discography over, you know, 25 years. And then they can put out a live record like the one we just did on our Patreon. That's a plug. Uh, And it's got songs from our first record, songs from our last record, songs from the records in the middle. We play them all the same. They fit right on there. It's just darkest hour. It just fits all together. You know what I mean? And so like um, from a nostalgia viewpoint uh, with the records and all these, like, you know, you mentioned these round numbers. I think that's funny because for us, it's like, it's an excuse. I mean, we pour yeah. our, we pour our fucking, souls into these records and then they get like two or three years of touring before we got to give you give people something else you know and then those awesome songs kind of get trampled because you got new songs got older songs you got other songs you didn't play and after a while the albums they still live on if they're good and people fall in love with them even more and they want to see those but they're like where's my excuse to demand those because if I'm a responsible fan, I'm not yelling at you to play your fucking master of puppets. You know, I just like you for being there. I'm not going to tell you play the whole thing in its entirety. But if you tell me as a band that you respect my love for the record master of puppets so much that you're going to play it at full, it's an entirety to celebrate it. Then I understand, you know, because I'm a part of it. And so for us, when we do, the record celebrations and the album plays in its entirety live and stuff. It's really, it's really for everyone to just really get to celebrate how cool those records were and how like the more shits change, the more shit ain't. And those records still hold up. The songs still fit in. It's still modern metal. You know what I mean? And it's cool to revisit the stuff that gets mowed over by the marketing machine. Because, you know, if we had released each one of these songs separately, maybe they all would have gotten their their due justice exactly. But time is a strange thing. And so the anniversaries, you know, celebrating your past is tricky because you always have to make sure you're still trying to do something in the present, you know. And uh, we come from a long history of punks that hate nostalgia. I mean, this is Washington, D.C. You ain't never going to see a minor threat reunion show. Right. You're not going to see a Fugazi reunion show. You're just not, you know, our heroes fight to the point where they'll give you a little bit, but they're going to, you know, they're going to let it go. Where's my black flag reunion show with Rollins singing? You know what I mean? So, so we walk on the line of being like, you know, bruised by that, but we also are intrinsically tied with our fans, you know, and we know, what and I, I call them fans, but you know, our friends, like the people that we respect that like what we're doing, you know, and we know that they appreciate when we just double back every once in a while and celebrate these albums. Because as you can tell by who we are, if you see what we're doing, we're clearly like artists who keep creating. So we, you don't have to worry in the unique way about Darkest Hour, as I was mentioning, you don't have to worry about us just 
relishing in the past because we're constantly creating. I mean, we've proved that not only with the albums, but how we've been shifting the way we do business, the way we interact with people and things we do where we tour. So, uh, you know, um, in the end, like having to, to, to do all that and, and pull it back into your music and pull it back into your creative group has made us kind of really immune to feeling like we're nostalgic because Mm -hmm. these albums, like you're only nostalgic. Like, yeah, these albums, they're now, you know what I mean? Like to me, it's crazy, but deliver us and Sadist nation are now, you know, I can play any songs off those albums. We practice them. You know what I mean? We, sometimes we like to bust out that instrumental. It's crazy. Like 13 minutes. You know what I mean? But like those didn't disappear to me. They're not old at all. In fact, there's shit on all these albums I could barely do then, and now I can finally maybe do, but I'm practicing all the time. So in a strange way, they have constant life too. And I think that's a little different than other bands because there's a lot of musicality to Darkest Hour that kind of drags you into like, why would an artist play their own song over and over and over and over again? Well, the answer is because it's super fucking hard to play and they want to be able to do it perfect all the time. And once you get to that point, those songs aren't old. They're just now, yeah. you know, and that's where our entire catalog exists because we're always practicing these songs in some form and dipping them together and, uh, you know, trying to have them live as an organic unit, more like chapters in a book rather than like separate books. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Well, Mike, this has been awesome. I appreciate you letting me uh, drag you all over the uh, musical landscape. But uh, yeah, thanks for hanging out, dude. I appreciate it. Man, I appreciate it too. I would love, I would always love to rap with you when we weren't being recorded because I always love talking to you. I, you know, I haven't seen you in way too long, but I'm glad to see that you're out there taking care of business, staying in the, in, in the, staying close to the core. Yeah, (laughs) man. You know, exactly. Yo, how great was that, right? Mr. Schleibaum, Mikey Schleibaum, just a, like I said, a raconteur. Maybe I didn't say that, but he is a raconteur. He's a person who you can sit there and listen to for hours and not get bored. And uh, that's that's what I think we accomplished in today's episode. So thank you very much to him. Thank you very much to his publicist, Stephanie, for setting this up. Unbelievable friend of mine. And uh, I always like to drop these little nuggets at the end just to make sure she's paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> it would be funny if I just didn't hear from her from for that perspective. But anyways, next week is another just I love this. Being able to pivot from darkest hour metal hardcore to local natives. Matt Frazier is the drummer of the very large indie rock band called Local Natives. I have loved this band for quite some time, and they actually, uh, those dudes, cut their teeth on the chain reaction scene here in the Southern California area, and a lot of them have many ties within the context of this independent music scene. And uh, the band Local Natives is incredible, and they play to a lot of people. (laughs) And so it was great because a listener of this show just emailed me and was like, hey, I'm friends with Matt, and uh, I think he'd be a great guest. And I love the idea, and we hooked it up. So that's what we got next week. Matt Frazier from Local Natives, the drummer extraordinaire. So until next week, please be safe, everybody. 